one of the first weddings that I ever officiated was a young couple, great young couple, Ryan and Melissa. Many of you know Ryan and Melissa Alberts. And not long into their marriage, they felt that God was calling them to go and serve together in Haiti. And so not long after they went to Haiti as a couple, uh, several representatives from our church, we went down to visit them, to encourage them, but also to, to go and explore Haiti and the ministries that were happening there to see if God would have us partner with anyone in Haiti. Well, while I was down in Haiti and I was talking to Ryan, we had a conversation that marked me to this day. And in that conversation, Ryan was talking about many of the men that he was working with and serving there in Haiti. And several of the men, when they saw the way he treated, that Ryan treated Melissa, they said, why don't you beat your wife? And it was a, it was a question that they actually had. Why don't you beat your wife? There are millions and millions and millions of women and children all around the world that are being abused and they're being exploited and they're being sold every day. That's why we're going to have this series that we're getting into now. And it's not just something that's happening in nations like Haiti. Becca encouraged me to read and to look at a number of resources. I'm so glad we did in preparation for the series. And one of them is this book here. It's called Girls Like Us. The reason that this one is not listed on the bottom of your sheet and another one is is because this is really explicit stuff. And we would encourage you, if you want to, to look at this one, but it might not be the the first resource you want to look at because this was written by a woman who was in the life. And she explains what happened to her, and now she is uh, the founder and executive director of an organization that's helping to rescue women and help them get their life around. Well, the reason I want to read this section so you can hear in her own words what this is like is because this isn't something that was happening, in her case, in Haiti. This was, she was born in England, and she was trafficked in Germany, two of the most um, industrialized nations in the world. And this will give you insight a little bit more. As she was, This story here picks up as she was coming out of the life, and she had found this little church just outside of an Air Force base in Germany, and there was a family who invited her to come and to spend some time with them to just have a a normal afternoon. And so they were watching Little Mermaid with the family, and this happened. Again, this is in her own words. She said, Towards the end of the afternoon, my entire worldview is shaken when David, the husband, asked for a cup of tea. Sonia and I go to the kitchen. We start chit-chatting while she prepares the snacks for the kids. We come out without the tea. Where's my tea? David asks. And I steal myself, preparing for the scene that's about to come. Sonia, who has sat down, begins to rise. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, honey. Any moment now. I'm waiting for the explosion. Oh, it's okay, babe. I'll make it myself. Don't worry about it, says David. And with that, he smiles. He rubs her shoulder, and he trots off to the kitchen to make it himself. And I'm stunned. Sonia's acting like everything is normal. But I'm having a hard time figuring this out. What just happened? What happened to the explosion? What happened to the anger and disgust in her forgetfulness? I try to hold it in, knowing that somewhere in my head, this question is about to sound marginally crazy, but I need an answer. Why didn't he hit you? I whisper, worried that David will hear. Huh? Sonia's confused. I mean, frustrated that she's not getting the obvious. Why didn't you get in trouble over the tea? Why didn't he yell at you or something? Sonia looks like she wants to laugh, but then she realizes I'm serious. And she looks horrified. Oh, sweetie. 
that's not how we do things in this house. Ever. And now she just looks sad. Oh, okay. I feel bad that I've upset her and I realize I've betrayed exactly what I've been trying so hard to hide. I'm embarrassed. David comes back in with tea for himself and one for me and one for her. This is just too much. He must be the nicest man on the planet. I am completely thrown off. Sonia, guessing we probably need to discuss this whole why he didn't hit you thing a little more, tells him that we're going to go in the kitchen for some girl talk. And we spend the rest of the afternoon talking about love and abuse and how they're not the same thing. While I think I probably know this intellectually, at 19, she's 19, at 19, it's the first time I've ever begun to believe this. Putting this realization into practice will take a few more years. This is real. This is absolutely real. And I have a question for you as we start this series. How many of you want to live in a world where no one believes it's okay to harm someone else just because you can? Who wants to live in that world? I want to live in that world. Abuse and exploitation, it's not just happening in Haiti. And it's not just happening in England. And it's not just happening in Germany. In the United States, there is a report of child abuse every 10 seconds. Child abuse every 10 seconds. And in the United States, someone is sexually assaulted every 98 seconds. This is in the United States, not worldwide. As Becca mentioned earlier this morning, there are estimates that human trafficking specifically is now a $150 billion industry. Some of you know Brother Rick. He comes to our first service. Brother Rick goes, wow, or something like that. He just was blown away. You know, that, that, I believe, is more than companies like Nike or Google make in a year. And human trafficking is not just something that's happening somewhere else. This is straight from our MinDot website, and this is word for word off of that. In 2015, Minnesota had the third highest number of human trafficking cases. And those who are on the front lines, and we have a number of people who've been in this service and others who have been on the front lines of this, It happens in places you'd expect, and it happens in places you wouldn't expect, like ice houses on some of our most popular lakes. I want to encourage you to take a moment to write this down. Let's jump into this thing. Here we go. Trafficking is real. Trafficking is wrong. And you can make a difference in this. You can make a difference. Over the course of this series... We hope that we're going to start to see the world with clearer eyes than we do now. Becca told me how she was recently at a clothing store. And that clothing store sells sells, uh, inexpensive leggings for teen girls. And as she was in there making a purchase, she noticed a couple young men buying a lot of inexpensive leggings. And had this series not been on her radar, she may not have noticed something's not right. I was talking to Steve, one of our newest members. He works at Teen Challenge. And he says, yeah, I've sat across the table from men who have sold women and girls at the Motel 6 in Roseville. Right there in the shadow of Rosedale Mall. This is real. It's happening all around us. 
and it's wrong. And it's not something we should ignore just because we can. Many of us could ignore this, but we shouldn't ignore something just because we can. Before this series is over, it is our hope and our prayer that we'll have a better understanding of signs to look for, that we'll know numbers to call, We'll, we'll have a better idea of how do we talk to young people, kids, about these types of things. And it's our hope and prayer that we're going to be better equipped to help people from falling into common traps. We're going to be better equipped to help those who have. And another thing we're going to try to do, and to spend some time on this as we get deeper into the series especially, we want to confront myths and stereotypes and false narratives and I think of this judge along this lines. I think of this judge that many of us had a chance to hear from as part of a global leadership summit that we attended in August. And this judge, he was dealing with domestic abuse cases. And as he was looking at the photos and at the injuries and at the stories of women who were victims of domestic abuse, he started thinking about the prostitution cases that were coming across his desk and how the photos and how the injuries and how the stories were almost identical. And he began to realize this is not as simple as prostitution being a choice that people are making to break the law. It's far more complicated than that. Well, from the words herself, from this Rachel Lloyd who wrote that book that I read from earlier, she experiences firsthand, and she says this about choices and about myths and stereotypes. She says, the sex industry, it's not about choice. It's about what? It's about a lack of choices. And in this week's ECC mail, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a link to a video that we decided not to show in here. It portrays this really well, what it's like from the perspective of someone who's caught in the life. Because it shows this little girl getting from getting abused to trying to run away from that, but finding the abuse everywhere she goes. And for her, the choice was like this, and they demonstrate this so graphically in the sense where they have this, this young girl, and she's, it's like she's on a cliff, and in front of her, the cliff is collapsing, so she has to back up or she's going to fall off the cliff. And as she's backing up, there's these thorns that are trying to grab and, and get her, and that's what the choice feels like. You've got this or you've got that. And these are the types of things that we hope as we get further into this series that we can begin to see. When Jesus walked among us, he said this. He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, he said, it is better. These are the words of Jesus. He said, it is better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and for you to be thrown in the ocean than for you to cause one of these little ones to sin. That is the heart of God on this. That's the way the Lord feels about this. And none of this escapes God's sight. And because of that, we can't just point fingers at others because this is happening in our backyards and we have the capacity to do something about it. Which brings us to this next point. There's a place to write this in your notes too. In a world filled with so much brokenness, we can't fix everything. And we need to hear that too. Hear that throughout this series. We can't fix everything. Every topic that we talk about from here, God's not calling every one of us to be equally involved in everything. We can't fix everything. But here's what we want you to reflect on and consider for the next three weeks. This week plus three more. Reflect on this. When was the last time that we counted the cost of looking the other way as millions of women and children are daily violated 
for profit. And I chose that word violated intentionally. And I intentionally didn't put the definitions in your notes or on the screen. I want you to look that one up. Look up the word violated. Look at all those definitions. No one should be violated ever. Ever. Can I get an amen to that? Ever. And yet they are. One in three girls in the United States will be violated at some point in their life. One in six young men. We can't ignore that if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures. Every person, every person who has ever conceived bears the image of God. Every person, every person. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. And take a look at this. This is why we can't ignore this. The average life expectancy for a girl who is lured into the sex trafficking industry is only what? What's her life expectancy once she gets in between the ages of 12 and 14? It's seven years. Seven years. Her life matters, right? So this matters. There is a cost. There is a cost to others if we sit on the sidelines and we say nothing and we do nothing. And as we're going to see in a couple minutes... We pay a price ourselves if we say nothing, if we do nothing. Gary Haugen is the founder of International Justice Mission. Can I get a woo-hoo for that organization? Aren't they doing some great stuff? They're doing some great stuff. Here's what he says about this whole thing. He says, certainly the work of justice brings marvelous rescue and joy to the victims of injustice. But God wants his people to know that the work of justice benefits the people who do justice as well. It is a means of rescue, not only for the powerless, but for the powerful who otherwise waste away in a world of triviality and fear. How many of you don't want to live trivial lives? I don't want to live a trivial life. Well, the text that we're going to explore during this series, it goes even further than Haugen does. The book of Amos is the book we're going to look at. Can I get a woo-hoo for Amos? Woo, man, this is a, this, Wow. Amos reveals there is a price to pay when we don't keep God's statutes. There's a place to write this down. More than 2,500 years ago, a shepherd named Amos was entrusted with the task of bringing a divine message to a complacent people. And in a nation where more than 100,000 children are trafficked for sex, estimates are between 100,000 and 300,000, that message is as relevant today as it was then. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's go to the beginning of Amos. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Now we're going to be pointing you towards tremendous resources throughout this series. This is the number one tremendous resource right here. It contains words like we're going to be looking at. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one absolutely free today. At the table right as you exit, there's a stack of Bibles. Please take one as our gift to you. Here we go. These are the words of Amos. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, an intro like this is pure gold if you like to fact check. This is pure gold. Why is this pure gold? Because in the very first verse, we get the name of the speaker. We get the the audience that he's speaking to. And we have historical events that can be collaborated. I love that. 
In the year 931 BC, the 12 tribes of Israel who had once been united, united, (laughs) split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Amos was from Judah, but he was given a vision that he was compelled to share with the kingdom of Israel. Now, the terms that describe what Amos did for work are not easy to translate. So you have to go from the clues that are in the text themselves. When you add up the clues, you come to one of two conclusions. Number one, that he was either a poor manual laborer who did different work during different seasons, or he was a person of means who owned sheep and cattle and land. We can't be sure what his economic status was, but here's what we know. In Amos chapter 7, he makes it clear. He says, I am not a professional prophet. I'm not even the child of a professional prophet. They had professional prophets in those days. And he wasn't one of them. He said, but God took me from my sheep and he said, go and prophesy to the people of Israel. Actually, it was more specific than that. Prophesy, speaking for God, to my people, Israel. Amos had a message and he had a context. He had a context. Amos references the reigns of two kings in this context. We can put it on a timeline. He also references an earthquake that was so significant that the people were still referencing it hundreds of years later. That happened when we were down in Haiti. It wasn't hundreds of years, but we went years after the earthquake. They referenced time based on that earthquake that hit them. This one was so big, they were referencing it hundreds of years later. We even see it in the Bible. This is out of Zechariah 14.5. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. That was written two to three centuries later than Amos. That was a big deal earthquake. Such a big deal that in the time of Jesus, the historian Josephus references this earthquake. And we even have archaeological evidence for this earthquake. The reason I'm going into the weeds on all this is because the book of Amos bears the mark of a real message given by a real person to real people in a context. And as this series goes on, one of the things that's very unnerving is that this incredibly challenging prophecy, this challenge was given to a people whose context is an awful lot like ours. That's one of the things that just makes this chilling. Okay, so let's look at the prophecies as Amos unfolds them. So right, verse 2, here we go. And Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion. And utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Carmel withers. Now Mount Carmel is what they're talking about here. Mount Carmel was Israel's Lake Tahoe. But it was better. Because it's like you took Tahoe and put it right next to the ocean. Right? So this is Carmel. It was a beautiful mountain overlooking the Mediterranean from the northern coast of Israel. It received about 28 inches of rain per year. And back in its day, the slopes were covered with olive trees and vineyards and rich pasture land. Pasture land. Pasture land. <laughs> For retreats. It was great. They'd send us there. It was awesome. Amos. Amos launches in... <laughs> subconscious kicking in there. Amos launches into his prophecy with a warning. 
that the relative peace and prosperity of the nation of Israel that they were experiencing right then, it wasn't a sign of God's blessing and favor. The lion of Judah was roaring, and even the top of Mount Carmel wasn't safe from his justice. Lions used to live in that region. And imagine if Amos has got this experience as a shepherd, what more terrifying sound are you going to hear in a day before gunpowder than a lion roaring? He got it. He understood it. They roar for a reason. Lions roar for a reason, especially in the wild. Chapter 3, verse 4 says this. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? The one, listen to this, the one who gave lions their roar employs their roar as a metaphor for this prophetic word. Verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? This is Amos saying, I'm not a professional prophet. My daddy wasn't a professional prophet. The lion is roaring. I don't have a choice. I need to bring you this message because lions don't roar for no reason. And when they pounce, it is devastating. Look what Amos says. This isn't something I made up. Amos 3.12. You can fact check me on this. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, Got that locked into your minds? That's what you get when you find your lamb that's been pounced on by the lion. As a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion, two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. Why was this lion about to strike in this devastating way? I encourage you to look in your notes and, and, and circle this. I already filled in this blank for you because we had a lot of blanks today, but I would encourage you to circle this. He's, the lion is roaring because their neighbors, he says, your neighbors have been judged and they've been found guilty. That's why I'm roaring. In the prophecy that follows here, God calls out six of Israel's neighbors by name. And each time he uses the same language. Every time, look it up yourself. Every time it's the same structure. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because. And he calls them out by name and he calls them out by what they did. And we see this in Amos 1.3, 1.6, 1.9, 1.11, 1.13, 2.1. And he goes on in each case to call them out by name and to list what they did and what the consequences will be for their pride and their acts of violence and injustice. And as you're hearing this list of all your neighbors around you, your enemies, Israel might have been thinking, ha ha, I like this Amos guy. Because it's about time that God smited those neighbors of ours, those stinkers. And... <laughs> that wasn't in my notes for <laughs> obvious reasons. But he doesn't stop there with stinkers. He, uh, he moves on. I want to encourage you to circle this in your notes too. Now he's getting a little closer to home. He says, not only have they been judged and found guilty, guess who else has? Your neighbors to the south, your brothers and sisters, your blood relatives, Judah. They've been judged too. Let's read that one, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. 
after listing these six neighbors, now it's time. Let's talk about your brothers and sisters to the south. For three transgressions of, of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, in the Bible, numbers matter. And if you come across a 3, if you come across a 7, if you come across a 12, if you come across a 40, or multiples thereof, tune in. And if you were tuning into that, you had 6 plus 1, which equals 7, which is a number of completion. So Israel at this point might have been saying, okay, judgment is complete. The six neighbors, those dinkers to the south. But then Amos continues on. And now pretty much for the rest of this prophecy, it's to Israel. It's to Israel. You have been judged and found guilty. And God's judgment concerning Israel that goes on and on and on, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, starts the same way that the rest of them did. Amos 2, 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgression of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now let's jump ahead to verse 8. Verse 8 says, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now you read something like that, this, this piece of, of judgment, and from our eyes, from our context, it's like, what does that even mean? And one of the things that we're going to try to remember to print in your notes each week are these Bible resources, because there's some great Bible resources out there that can help you look into some of the context behind these verses. So the three that we list at the bottom, I have examples of them right here. I would encourage you to get all three of those and have them on hand, not just for Amos, but for all of scriptures, right? So that you can start to have a basic, small resource library at home, because then you could see these things that I'm going to tell you now. All the things I'm about to tell you about verse 8, you can find in resources like that. So here's what's going on. And this is a short version of what's going on in Amos 2.8, where he says they lay down beside every altar on garments taking in pledge. What in the world is that about? In that time and in that place, if you were going to take a loan as a poor person, you've got very little to offer as collateral, right? The one thing you probably have is your cloak. Your cloak is, is your one significant garment that would protect you during the day from the elements, and at night it was your blanket. That's pretty much all you had. And so to, to say, I need a loan, this is what you would offer. And because that was such a significant thing, hundreds and hundreds of years before these events in Amos, God put protections in place. He said, as God's people, if you're going to do something like that, Here's how you do it. This is right out of the word of God, Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13. Words that they should have been very familiar with. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand on the outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore it to him, the pledge, as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you. 
before the Lord your God. This is the people that we were called to be. Not people who come from a position of power and we feel like we own this person's house and we barge in, I'll take that cloak. Oh, you stand on the outside. You show dignity and respect for this person. You let them go in. They bring it out to you. You know? And then specifically, this verse, if you go on reading in Deuteronomy 24 and it talks about widows, it says, you don't take any of their garments There were protections that the word of God puts in place that were unheard of back then. This is the God that we're called to serve. This is the God who we're called to align our lives with. This God who puts protections in place for the vulnerable. I was talking to Connie. She's one of the people who was helping us gather these resources and to, to know of all of these great things that people are saying and writing and doing, which are the ones we should draw people's attentions to. We were talking about this series before it started. And she was talking about how when a, when a young girl finds herself out on the streets and, and for, the, for the first time and she's homeless and she doesn't know where to turn, she's within 24 to 48 hours, that woman is going to be approached by somebody. She's going to be approached by somebody who says, hey, you need a place to stay? We've got one for you. But those people who approach her in that 24 to 48 hours... They want to take advantage of her and manipulate her. And she's soon going to be trapped. And here's Connie's point. Connie said, why aren't we the first there? Isn't that a good question? Why aren't we the first there? Well, as the prophecy continues, God makes it clear that it was he, it was God who called Israel by name for the, in the first place. He brought them out of slavery. He gave them a home. And when they lost their way in this promised land, when they rejected his laws, God fired warning shot after warning shot after warning shot after warning shot over their bow, but they would not listen. This is not the first time these people heard this. In fact, he would put it up on the screen. He says, he, he, after listening, I did this. Then he says, you did not return to me. I did this. You did not return to me. I did this. You did not return to me. In Amos, Amos lists it multiple times. Amos 4, 6, 8, 4, 8, 4, 9, 4, 10, 4, 11. And then we get this chilling statement in Amos 4, 12. Prepare to meet your God. Now, you would think, as the people of God, that would be a time of great rejoicing, right? Prepare to meet your God Woohoo! It's about, this is great. In fact, the prophet spoke of a day of the Lord that was yet to come. This was a day when God would make all things as they should be. This should be a day filled with joy and hope. Yes, God is coming back. But instead, Amos says, this is a day. This is a day that you don't want to see. Here's what it says. This is, The prophecy of Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It is darkness and it is not a light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. He says, I hate, no, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your birth offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But then he says this, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Can I get an amen to that? 
There's a reason Dr. Martin Luther King quoted that, right? This is powerful stuff. This is what we're called to. How many of you don't want our songs to be noise? How many of you don't want your offerings to be unacceptable? And there's a place to write this down. This is good news now. Hear this good news. In an unequaled act of love, God paid the price for our redemption. Because we all fall under this judgment. If it's not on this, it's on something else. And in an unequaled act of love, God paid the price that only he could pay. He paid a price that demonstrated his love. He paid a price that validated the worth of every person, no matter what you've done. He paid a price that makes it possible for us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. And we can look forward to that great day when we meet our maker. (laughs) It hit me, the song we were singing, the last song before I stepped up, and there's a, a line in there about the lion roaring. And he's roaring now on the other side of the grave that the grave has no hold on me if we're in Christ. I see what you did there now, Jason. It took me a while, but I see. It took me a lot of years to to realize this. And I believe this is worth writing down. The last thing we've got in your notes here. Repentance is a what? Repentance is a invitation. This is, this took me so long to get it. And I still confess there's times where I have to remember this to repent. If you don't know, it is to turn. It is to turn from what is wrong. It is to turn towards God and what is right to come back to our creator. When I was younger, I used to wonder why does God say no to all the things I want to do? And it's taken me so long to realize God is saying yes to something so much better. And that is not a cliche. That is a truth. There's a life that we were created to live, a life that makes a difference, a life that is fulfilling, and a life that can help other lives get transformed and experience the kingdom of God in their midst. Human trafficking is real. It is wrong. But we can make a difference if we repent from going the wrong ways, turn towards him and say, God, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? And I'm so thankful to be a part of a body of believers who are so committed to that. Just last week, 1045 service, a number of us huddled in the community room right over there. And we listened as the the child sponsorship um, lead from Emmanuel Children's Home, Kristen, as she shared of what, what can happen when we come together and try to help people. She shared the story, very real, very recent, of these two kids two young kids, they watched their mom and their dad and their sibling get murdered right in front of them. In Juarez, Mexico, where do you go when that happens? You go to the street where these things happen to you. But there was an auntie who said, I know of a home. And they brought these kids to that home. And even though the home right now doesn't have enough money even to pay their employees, they said, we will figure this out. Of course, we will welcome them in. And this is one of thousands of organizations that are committed to this cause. As you start doing your research, you're going to see there are a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of good things, but we need a whole lot more because this is a huge problem. During this season, 
this short season we're in, there's only three weeks left. Would you press in and ask, God, what would you have me to do? Stop by that resource table and learn more. Dig into Amos and pray and say, God, are you convicting me? Read some of these books. Talk to some of these people. We want to encourage you. Focus in and see if the Lord would be speaking to you during this series. Well, one of the things that we felt really strong, the teaching team, about going into the series was for us as we go into it to take time each week to just confess before the Lord that we've fallen short. Because what does it say? We try to say this every time we serve communion together, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive who? We deceive ourselves. You're not fooling God. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's together confess before God. Would you please join me in this prayer? If we can put that up on the screens. Please pray with me. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open us to a future in which can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Let me pray for us as we go forth. God, we pray now that you will come and descend upon us, Holy Spirit. Help us to see in this great song the greatness of you and this invitation that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.